The action rolls on for another week in the emerging cricket world, and we're here to discuss all of it from around the globe. Daniel Beswick here alongside Nick Skinner to talk about it. Uh, in absentia is Tim Cutler, who is currently on Challenge League duty with Vanuatu. It hasn't been the rosiest of spells for Vanuatu, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a moment's time. But Nick from Reykjavik, how is life in the Northern Hemisphere? Christmas is fast approaching. Uh, the winter weather is starting to hit the city. The streets are, um, I was going to say, uh, paved with gold, but no, they're uh, covered in ice and getting very slippery, which is uh, a bit of a challenge <laughs> that I've never had to deal with before. But uh, yeah, it's all, all part of uh, life in sunny Reykjavik, sunny uh, for about three hours of the day. The Western sort of media representation of Christmas would look very similar to, I think, what I imagine Iceland would look like right now in your part of the world. Uh, things are starting to gear up for Christmas here, although, yes, from a very a very summer standpoint, it'll be probably be 30 degrees on Christmas Day. Yeah, well, when I tell people here that's how we celebrate Christmas, their brains sort of seem a little fried at the concept. Can't comprehend <laughs> it. We still haven't put our Christmas tree up, which is probably a little bit sad, but it comes from a good place in that we've actually got a spare room in the apartment now. Our housemate has has moved out and we've sort of elected to convert it into an office. We'll be partly a podcast studio as well. I think you'll find, Nick. Ooh, and yeah. uh, once that's all ready to go, we will be... Uh, erecting our Christmas tree and uh, getting it ready to go there. So excited for all of that. Uh, Just as exciting as Christmas has been, well, almost a Christmas plethora of cricket going on in the emerging cricket world. A lot of levels, different levels in the men's international game at the moment from League 2 down, uh, as well as the the end of uh, the Netherlands tour of Thailand. We'll start with... League Two, almost work our way down. We're sort of in the race to Cricket World Cup 2023, or at least to the qualifier for the Cricket World Cup. We know it's still a 10-team tournament, this one day International World Cup next year, but there is a chance for teams still alive from the winners of the Challenge League legs that we will talk about a little bit later, and teams in League Two. Uh, Scotland racing away and looking like they'll be probably winners, actually, of, of League Two. As we do record, they're a single win from a guaranteed top three spot, although I think they're pretty safely in as well. Tri-Series in Namibia, the hosts uh, alongside Nepal and Scotland. There is a game actually going on as we're recording, uh, Nepal taking on the hosts. Namibia... It's fascinating to me, and I keep looking at this table, and I keep waiting for them to make the inevitable climb up the rungs and into the top three, and uh, the USA aren't a problem. UAE are probably their biggest challenger for that third spot, as disappointed Nepal fans will probably be uh, feeling with me saying that they're wedged in sixth at the moment, but... USA mathematically out of the running and will play in the playoff uh, next year as well as Papua New Guinea. UAE and Nepal, at least at this point, still have fate somewhat in their own hands. Namibia just doing enough here on home soil to just make that push into the uh, top three and to more than likely, you would think, overrun Oman. You would think that their spot is pretty safe now. They're just getting the job done on home soil, Nick. 
Yeah, they, they do seem to, as you said, just do enough. They I think they'd be a bit disappointed, uh, well, first of all, about the uh, lack of drainage or, or whatever was going on with the, the facilities uh, in Vintuk in their first game against Nepal, where it rained for about five minutes and somehow the match was called off at, at lunch because of the wet pitch or, I don't know, something. So, I mean, that's, yeah, really, uh, especially with a number of important events uh, over the next little while being hosted in Namibia, that's definitely something that they need to work on because, you know, you, you can't be calling off a match for that. And, yeah, probably it won't end up costing them at the back end, but, you know, just, just the fact that they missed out on another win there, it won't be great for them. Yeah, I mean, they're still pretty reliant on Erasmus. Um, we, we've talked about their top order being a bit wobbly. Uh, their, their second match against Nepal, the top order, again, the openers... Uh, got out pretty cheaply, but um, you know it's good to see Van Leeuwen getting a score. Jan Nikolov de Eaton seems to be settling into his work in the middle order. Uh, he he played a really mature knock in that second uh, match against Scotland that they won. Um, they they were in a bit of trouble. Uh, he and Piggy Yarfrance, who is kind of he, he he's had a long winding career. Yeah, so many different roles yeah. in the team over the years. Yeah, I I really like Yarfrance. I think he's got a lot of versatility to him, um, as we've seen. But you know, sort of earlier in his career, he was a, a very grim top order batter. You know, hitting fifty off one hundred and fifty deliveries in when Namibia was playing in the. Uh, first class competition in South Africa, and he's sort of reinvented himself as a as a spin bowler and um, also as a sort of utility batter who can come in basically anywhere up and down the order. And he, he hits it really nicely straight. Um, he has a, he still has that sort of the core of that solid technique, and and he sort of applies it a bit more aggressively these days. Runs effectively between wickets. Yeah, him and Lofty Eaton. Um, you know, Namibia were. Uh, you know, four for forty-nine, five for sixty-five, six for a hundred. Yeah, so that they were they were really struggling going after Scotland's total of two hundred and eight in that second match. And yeah, Picky hit fifty-two not out, and um, and Jan Nikolov to eaten sixty-seven not out. Two very mature knocks from. Well, I mean, Picky's a senior player now, but <laughs> Jan Nikolov to eaten still what barely twenty-two maybe. So yeah, good to see him settling into his into his work in the middle order and. And in that last match against Nepal, um, where him and Michael Van Lingen put on a, a pretty solid partnership after Erasmus got out, um, he, he hit 40-odd um, in pretty quick time. So, yeah, I think we, we've talked about Namibia's sort of batting lineup struggles. It the, the seems like the final piece of the puzzle here is is just the openers just being a little bit more consistent and, and getting them off to um, you know better starts. And once that falls into place... Namibia are going to be really tough to beat because they've got the power down the order. They've got, obviously, Erasmus, one of the best bats in... Well, I mean, he's a world-class player. Um, they've got Jan Kolefti eaton seemingly settling into his role coming in down the order. Um, you know, so, yeah, the only thing missing really is a consistent opening partnership. Um, the, the bowling for Namibia, again, has been good. Bernard Scholz, uh, miserly as always, uh, very difficult to put away. Uh, Trompelman gets wickets. Uh, get you know he, he Trompelman provides that X factor where he can just sort of rip out three, four guys pretty quickly and and, and get a four for. Whereas you know someone like Scholz is a bit more you know sort of plugs away on a consistent line, picks up one or two. Uh, Tangeni Lungameni keeps picking up wickets. Um, he's been well significantly improved over you know his performances in the um, sort of pre- previous 25 matches or so in, in the Challenge League. Um, not that he's 
you know played every single game. But um, yeah, Lungamani looks good. Um, he's 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 very improved. Uh, JJ Smith's recovery seems to be going well. He's been bowling his full quotas. Um, so yeah, Namibia looking looking very good. They'll be disappointed. They sort of they they played a pretty underwhelming match against Scotland in the first ODI. Um, but you know Scotland very good team. They're just uh, pretty clinical most of the time. Uh, <laughs> Kyle Kutzer biffed around a half century in that in that first game and you know basically got them home with that. Sort of broke the back of the chase there. Um, and they yeah they really sort of lost the plot really in the second Namibia game and um, McMullen who you know you, you mentioned last week uh, he was he's been pretty impressive with bat and ball for Scotland in, in this series so he looks like a real fine for them yeah I can't remember exactly what we did mention last week I think it was that when we spoke to the Scottish players actually at the T20 World Cup in the pre-event stuff and we asked him you know who the player to watch was and a lot of them said McMullen and he didn't come out and actually feature um i don't think he got a game but yeah it's it's looking like his potential is starting to be realized in the setup a tall figure all-rounder can do a bit of both a lot of leverage as the uh cliched commentators like to say some long levers uh yeah scotland for me are, are proving that i think across all surfaces in all conditions and in most situations they are the best team at this level it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next cycle when we do believe that the netherlands come back and this becomes an eight team competition how the likes of scotland stack up against the netherlands at the moment because i think we know and everyone out there in the emerging cricket world knows that the netherlands have come along so far in the last 12 months by virtue of playing super league cricket and now they come back down to play at this level and yes it is a different type of cricket and it means you you might get different results and it will be difficult for a team like the netherlands but it'll be interesting to see how much of that how much of the lessons they've learned over the last 12, 24, 36 months they can apply into new situations, that being back in League 2. A little bit of a transitional phase for Scotland in regards to, you know, say eventually Kyle Kutzer will retire from all forms of cricket. He's still playing the one-day stuff at the moment. Got a first baller actually from Ruben Trumpleman in, in one of the matches. Uh, it was actually the match that Namibia put on that unbeaten 99-run stand between Picky and Nicole Lofty-Eaton. But, you know, you look at that side and Christopher McBride's coming to the team and he's starting to sort of build into his work. I don't think we've seen his best just yet. McMullen, as, as mentioned, batting a little bit further down the order. They actually brought Mark Watt in to bat before Michael Leask in one of the particular games there. Which, I don't hate that. Yeah, Mark Watt is more than capable with the bat, as is Michael Leask, and it's it's good that you know a team like this is is somewhat flexible. And then you've got someone like Hamza Tahir coming into the team to be another left-arm orthodox spinning option, even with Mark Watt. So they've got quite a bit of depth. Whether or not it's it's Dutch depth, if the Dutch were to have all their county players back, I'm, I'm not so sure. But, you know, they're starting to cement themselves as, as the best team in this competition. You know, they will almost certainly finish top of the group now. You know, they're level with Oman at the time of recording with five games in hand. Namibia do have two games on them, but they're nine points back. So I, I can't see much changing there. And to bring it back to Namibia, yeah, there's still questions about the opening situation Stephen Bard not playing we think he's been dropped we haven't heard anything otherwise and then you've kind of got two or three other guys there who just can't quite do enough to truly cement that position now they're playing Nicole Lofty in the middle order so there are questions from Namibia's side of things but you know their batting lineup is so long that they can always kind of fight 
and they do have a good temperament for the 50-over game. I think that's what sets them apart from the teams that they find themselves above the table this far into the, the, the competition because, you know, even with games in hand and stuff like that, the table doesn't really lie at this point. I mean, you know, if you play 36 matches, you'd like to think that it's a pretty accurate reflection of how everything's going. And I think for someone like PNG with so many fundamental problems, there's no secret to them being 2 and 25 uh, with one tie. So... Uh, yeah, I don't think that we're completely shocked by what we've seen here in League Two. Just to kind of make it, maybe add Nepal into this because they are the, the the third team playing this this tri series in particular. I mean, the elephant in the room is quite simply, you know, what does a Nepali bowling attack and what does a Nepali team look like in this cycle and the next cycle without Sandeep Lamachane? Because you know, with everything going on off the field, I think there's a very real possibility that we don't see Sandeep Lamachane playing in a Nepali shirt in the near future, if at all in the future. And putting all of that aside, what it means is that it's, it's forced Nepal into even more shuffles of this team. You know, they've chopped and changed with this lineup so many times since the cycle started in 2019. And yes, over three years, you are going to get a transition of sorts, but there's been a transition of coaching and philosophies on top of leadership the likes of Lamachane, Mala, I still think Paris might have been captaining at the start of the League 2 phase or League 2 cycle. So, you know, he was still around. They're still crying out for batting and there doesn't seem to be any systemic change in the Nepali infrastructure to change that. Uh, it, you know, you can only say the same things over and over again before, you know, you bang your head against a brick wall. The bowling, again, is going to keep them afloat, but I just, I still don't know where, you know, the runs are coming from. And in probably the most curious move out of all of this, Nick, is the fact that given the situation with Sandeep, drastic times, drastic measures, you would have thought that maybe they just hand the captaincy back to Ganendra Mala. Whether or not he wanted it, we don't know. But they've given it to Robert Bordell, who's younger than Sandeep. And it leads to more questions about, you know, who wants it. I thought, honestly, someone like Dependra Singh Ire would probably be my choice if you were to sort of move it forward on a permanent basis but yeah a lot of curious things happening out of Nepal there's never really been a method to the madness unfortunately at least as long as emerging cricket's been going for well that's a good point <laughs> maybe we're overthinking it but I, yeah I, the, the other question is yeah who wants it which seems like it's a bit of a poison chalice you know often captains in Nepali cricket at least since um since Paris Kadka they haven't really lasted very long um would Mala have accepted it if they offered? I don't know. Padel, yeah, definitely seems like a strange option because, I mean, is his spot in the team even cemented? I'm not so sure. Dependra Singh Ari, I mean, his batting seems to have slipped a bit, but now he's kind of providing wickets for them. So, yeah, it's all a bit in flux. Their bowling, as you say, is, has been finding a way to get wickets without Sandeep. Um, so that's, that's encouraging, you know, looking ahead because... Yeah, obviously, with Sandeep in police custody and that whole case winding its way through the courts, they're, they're not going to have him, even in the best case scenario, he won't be playing for quite a while. So they really need to find a way to win without him. The batting, uh, I mean, that's always been the problem, hasn't it? They've, they've shuffled around. The the young brigade seem to be kind of, you know, that, your, your Asif Sheikhs, your, your, obviously your Iris, your Pudels, they're just not really doing it with the bat. Ganendra Mala was... The one who really held it together, yeah, against Namibia in that in the washout. Mallow was the one who, uh, who who hit a half century. 
I mean, the bowling, as again, you know, against Scotland, Scotland had a bit of a wobble there, and I think they only got the target with sort of three wickets in hand. So, you know, they, they are finding a way. Again, they're missing fast bowlers, but that's that's always been a problem for them. Um, you know, Karan KC, Sompal Kami, there's not really anybody else. You know, most of the young bowlers coming through, <laughs> it's more spin options. Uh, you know, you've got Raj Banshi taking wickets. You've got Sago Darkale, who's who's a new guy uh, in in the team, only just starting out. There's another uh, left-arm orthodox spinner. You know, so their options do feature a lot of spin, which I mean, that's okay. But as we've seen, you know, you you do want some some pace bowling spearheads to break through in innings sometimes, and Nepal's bowling. I think they're not going to be able to get into a top three position with a fairly one-dimensional bowling attack and such a fragile batting lineup. And unfortunately, you know, we all want Nepal to do well. Nepal is sort of the poster child for cricket development in the associate world, but yeah. their team just can't quite get there. Uh, I struggled to put sentences together that we haven't already said about all of this. So I think... Uh, the safest thing for me to do is to move on to the next topic, just to kind of run through the table to give everyone some context. Just as we're we're talking, Namibia are home against uh, Nepal in that match with Van Lingen making a hundred, so they move to thirty-seven points after thirty games. Uh, means that Nepal are stuck on 18 points, 23 played. So just running through the table as we're recording, that caveat important. Uh, as of Wednesday, Scotland 31 matches, 44 points. Oman Dunn, 36 matches, 44 points. Uh, Namibia 30 matches, 37 points. USA all done, 36 matches, 35 points. UAE 26 matches, 27 points. Nepal 23 matches, 18 points. And PNG languishing at the bottom with just two wins, 28 matches, two wins, and a tie to take them to five points. Let's move to the league below because from a Challenge League point of view and from a Cricket World Cup qualifier playoff perspective, we have four teams out of the six confirmed now. We have two of the Challenge League winners plus the USA and PNG who can't escape the bottom four. Uh, it was a win for Canada in Challenge League, as we were probably expecting given their head start heading into the third and final leg of Group A. Jersey, of course, were the other winners in Group B. That uh, tri-series ended some time ago. But looking at Canada, got to say they've dropped one match in this entire cycle. That was three years ago, over three years ago now. You can look back to World Cricket League 2 in Namibia, Nick, and you can argue that you know they probably didn't deserve to be in the Challenge League in the first place. They were missing a couple of players here, given some situations outside of, of cricket, you know, professional opportunities and work and stuff like that. You have to say they've been pretty clinical, put Singapore to the sword, who have been average in fairness. Uh, but yeah, going on to, to win every game so far, as we record, we are recording before this Challenge League is over, but... You know, for all intents and purposes, everything's basically lined up now. We know the bottom two to go into a potential relegation playoff that's yet to be confirmed. And we've got the winners now of, of both sides of uh, Challenge League. So your Canadians, Nick, uh, for you to put a Canadian hat on, uh, I've done the business here and uh, keep the dream of uh, India 2023 alive at least. Yeah, that um that World Cup playoffs going to be interesting. There's a very spicy rematch against the USA uh, coming up, 
And we all remember, or at least I remember, and I hold on to this grudge. Oh, we all remember. <laughs> the uh, the Americans charging onto the field as though they'd they'd won, you know, the whole tournament when they managed to deny Canada a, a run rate boost high enough. So Canada won against the USA, but the Americans were were cheering because they'd managed to keep Canada out of League Two, which yeah, I guess in fairness to the Americans, they probably didn't want to have to play Canada. And based on based on the results so far, you'd you'd rather fancy your chances against PNG than than Canada if you're playing in League Two. So that'll be interesting. But uh, yes, very clinical from the Canadians. Um, slightly new look side. They've got a couple of new guys coming in. Uh, Navneet Daliwal not opening the batting. A- according to sources uh, you know, within the Canadian camp, he um, uh, he's needing to uh, look after some construction work going on uh, with his business, uh, so he wasn't able to Canada and and come play. But you know the guy's averaging 80 at a strike rate of 90. Like you'd you'd think he'd try and find a way to make it work. He's a, he's a league two batter, isn't he? He's, he's too good for for this level of competition. And in fairness, they didn't need him here. Well, yeah, I was, was going to say that <laughs> they've managed pretty handily without him. Uh, Aaron Johnson's come into the team. He had a fantastic T20 series that that sort of warm up series they played in Oman. I, I think he hit something like five half centuries in seven matches. Um, he. he really thrashed Singapore around, just absolutely carving it over cover and has that kind of real strength down the ground. Pargat Singh, the other new opener, has has looked pretty solid and Shramantha Weir-Jayaratna is back in the team as well. So um, pretty handy top order. Nicholas Curtin, even um, despite a, a pretty mediocre outing in the domestic 50-over uh, cricket in, in the West Indies, he dug Canada out of a bit of trouble against Qatar. Um yeah, I'll definitely make the case that Canada are too good to be playing uh, in, in Challenge League. I mean, Singapore have been pretty dismal. Like, it, it was a bit disappointing they didn't make more of a challenge. They're really, they're missing quite a few big names. Chandra Mohan's not there. Rangarajan's not there. Mutrej is not there. You know, this, this leaves a bit of a hole in, in a team. And especially if Tim David's also not there. So, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure uh, what's going on with that whether they were unavailable due to other commitments or if they've sort of given up on qualifying and they're, they're just, I don't know, sending a development to, I don't know, very strange. But um, yeah, Vanuatu, I guess we can talk to Tim about it a bit more next week, oh. but they, they, they managed to turn over Singapore and give us all a bit of hope that they might be able to you know get out of those bottom two uh, positions. But yeah, a couple of very disappointing losses, especially against Malaysia and Qatar, looks like... They'll probably uh, they're probably stuck in in that relegation zone. Yeah. Uh, which yeah, again, looking looking ahead to the uh, Challenge League playoffs, according to the EC Brains Trust, uh, i.e., Tom Grunshaw, although there's plenty of other brainy people involved, um, um, Vanuatu and Malaysia look likely to be coming up against Kuwait, Tanzania, Saudi Arabia, and Bahrain, which will be a pretty interesting tournament uh, for a number of reasons, if if that's how it shakes out, because you know, you'll be having those cross-continental playoffs, uh, which which don't happen a whole lot. Yeah, we need more of them. Yeah, and and so it'll be an interesting kind of uh, yardstick of where everybody is. But yeah, that's probably a bit in the future. And um, you know, if if there's a uh, <laughs> if there's a miracle, Vanuatu could still leapfrog Qatar. But yeah, it seems very very unlikely. Looking as well, you know, Denmark in the middle there. 
managed to beat Singapore, just sort of just scraped over the line. Malaysia beat Denmark, though, um, which also happened last time that the Challenge League was in Malaysia. Syed Aziz hitting some runs. Um, Nikolai Damgaard once more, uh, you know, in the wickets and in the runs. The guy is another guy who's too good to be playing Challenge League. I think, you know, he does play some club cricket in Ireland, but, you know, he's one of those players that you, you feel should be getting more opportunities elsewhere. But, yeah, I, I guess the main story is just that everything's more or less set in stone halfway through the Challenge League and, um, yeah, just a, a bit disappointing or, or very disappointing, really, for, for Vanuatu fans, given the undoubted quality that exists in the team, but they just can't quite seem to put it together. Yeah, I've, you talked about it being in, in Canada and, and Tim's talking it, talk, talked about it to us both. The frustration is there because there is a high ceiling for this team. You know, there probably wouldn't be this much disappointment if they didn't think that they could achieve incredible things at this level. I think even looking at the East Asia Pacific Qualifier A, a couple of moments there a couple of brain fades with the bat and a couple of times where batters didn't realize they had more time than they thought they did. And it was a microcosm. It didn't really have such bad consequences later in the innings because there was always enough batting quality there in T20 cricket. They would always bat the overs. And with all due respect to the other teams in the Pacific, the opposition bowling attack is not as strong. You come to the Challenge League and you're playing 50 over cricket. You don't need to do what a lot of them were doing there was just so many brain fade shots and there's just so many things and so many runs are just leaving on the table by not playing to their potential i look at someone like junior counterpower has been one of few positive things to come out of the challenge league is that he actually likes playing the 50 over side he actually looks like he builds his knock somewhat it'd be interesting to see him play multi-day cricket actually i think the extra time would would really suit him yeah and he is a guy that you would want in the middle overs because he turns ones into twos. He's probably the quickest runner between wickets in that Vanuatu team. And looking around the associate world, there wouldn't be many other players that would rival him. Sese Bao is probably one other name that I can think of off the top of my head who is as lightning there. You know, they're losing a couple of early wickets in the power play and they're getting, it's just an all too common situation for them where they're getting to four for 54 for 64 for 80, maybe five for a hundred. And there's a rebuild in that kind of fifth, sixth wicket partnership. But then as they get into the, between the 30th and the 40th over, they just lose all the momentum again, just when you think that they're going to move themselves away from their opponents and, post a decent total because in challenge league you only need to post a score in excess of 220 on you know some more bowler friendly wickets and with slower outfields around especially in places like malaysia where things are quite slow you only need to put up 220 to be competitive and you look at those matches against qatar and malaysia they're in the game with the ball for quite a long period of time there too by taking a couple of early wickets and having the other the opposition in the same situation but they have the benefit of knowing that they only need to chase 170, 180 and not 220. And so you pace yourself and, you know, in the end, you just get one partnership that's been put together by both of those teams and the match is gone. I would like to see this Vanuatu team think about it and say to themselves, look, we don't care if we're 150 after 40 overs with six weeks in hand. I would back that team with the power and with, you know, the, the T20 nows to score 80 runs in the last 10 overs. I know it's easier said than done but you can try and make hay in the power play even off air before we started talking about this Nick 
you know, what's stopping Vanuatu from just throwing out a pinch hitter at the top of the order and just saying, look, mate, like, fill your boots if you can. If not, we'll recover in the middle overs. Because you've got the, the pace, athleticism, and the nous to, to churn out four and over in the middle overs, right? So say you score, I don't. it doesn't even matter if you're one for 40 after 10 overs. If you're four and over at Challenge League level inside the first 40 overs, you're in a good spot. You make six and over, eight and over, 10 and over in the final 10, and you build yourself a nice little total. And eight times out of 10, you're probably going to win matches of cricket. And look, I'm sure there's going to be shuffles and they are missing Mansale, you know, for some reasons outside of cricket. But there's just enough talent there in that team to be better. And... I will say, Nala Nipico was absolutely fiercely unlucky. Goodness gracious. It could be the worst LBW decision I've seen in a long time. A long time, Nick. Just to paint a picture for anyone who hasn't seen it, Nala Nipico is batting probably a foot outside of his crease. Then the bowler left arm around the wicket, bowling wide of the crease too. So it's not like he he's kind of wedged up next to the umpire and bowling sort of stump to stump around the wicket. He's slinging it almost Mitchell Stark-esque from way outside the line of the pitch. It's going, angling into the right-hander. Nala Nipico's taken a decent stride forward. He doesn't get a long way forth, but he it hits him high-ish, which makes me think that even with all of this aside, it's probably going over the stumps. It's hit him outside the line by about a stump width, maybe two stumps width. But there's just so many variables. Even if you did deem him to be hit inside the line in that situation... How can you categorically tell me that that ball's not going over the stumps or not going down the leg side purely by the angle that he's bowling from? Oh, yeah, we, we've seen... Uh, he, he seems a bit trigger-happy, I'll, I'll put it that way, with his uh, LBW calls. I'm not sure if the name will stay in the podcast, but, yeah, there's been one particular umpire in competitions that we have witnessed over the years where these things tend to follow. It's not great. And, you know, ultimately... The caveat in all of this is that it costs people money, decisions like that. You know, that's a decision that could have wide-sweeping consequences in the context of Challenge League in future cycles, you know, with a new media rights cycle next year and ICC funding. You don't know what the consequences of that are. Look at Canada, for instance, who have been so hard-pressed trying to keep cricket afloat in Canada after missing out in World Cricket League 2, and it took, you know, the bounce of the ball and a, and a USA partnership for them to go from one-day international status to being basically in a hole. And we saw several Canadian players after World Cricket League 2 basically give up the game because there was no professional viability for them in the game, and they took up extra opportunities and, and professional lives. And, you know, we've seen that with Navneet Daliwal not even playing in Challenge League, and they've been forced to to carry on without him and luckily for them or I think deservedly for them because they play the best cricket in Challenge League they'll get hopefully another opportunity to to move up the rungs again but yeah look these things have consequences and goodness me you, you've got to make sure you, you, you're doing your level best as an umpire and we know it's not an easy job Nick you've done it and, and you would know that it's it's not an easy job but look I look at things like that and it just makes me wonder you know what what are people thinking I think we'll leave it there I guess the thing for me is it's not necessarily, okay, fine, you know, you, you make bad decisions sometimes, um, but it's how you manage a game. And then, you know, we, we saw subsequently oh, with, the, with the LBW of, of Ronald Tari, who I think on balance, there was a good decision to give him out. He looked out. But, you know, Ali, the bowler, carrying on like a pork chop, charging down at the umpire, waving his arms, yelling, screaming, you know, going crazy. That's just not on. And as an umpire, that's where your quality 
should come through. And again, I guess we can kind of make the comparison to maybe the gold standard uh, of this that we've seen, which is Claire Polisak and her ability to manage a game and sort of keep a lid on aggressive players and, 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 and their antics. Never saw anything like that in any game she was officiating, whereas, um, you know, this particular gentleman... Uh, has has Ali even been cited or anything? I, I don't I didn't see him get a, any kind of talking to from the umpire. He just sort of no. carried on like nothing happened. I mean, we might we might see it in a in a press release in a couple of days from now where it comes out. But by the time he actually celebrated his wicket, he was almost shaking hands with the umpire. He was that close. He's running. He's followed through. He bowls left arm orthodox. He's followed through. He's probably a metre and a half in front of the crease where he bowls. By the time he finishes his appeal, he's past the stumps on the other side next to the umpire. It was unacceptable. And I did see that live and I was with a couple of colleagues and they've turned to me and the response was strong, but it was justified. You can't be running in at an umpire like that. It's intimidatory. It's unlawful and you'd hope to think that there was a conversation had in that situation because as an umpire, you shouldn't be taking that. Anyway, that concludes our uh, Challenge League discussion. Uh, once again, reiterating Canada through to the Cree World Cup qualifier playoff, as well as Jersey, who won their uh, Challenge League group earlier in the year. We haven't really got confirmation as to how Challenge League relegation promotion will work as yet. Anything that we've mentioned and, and anything that Nip mentioned there is with the disclaimer that it hasn't been formally announced, but by the ICC. So uh, keep your eyes peeled in regards to that because there will be definitely news on that front. Let's move to Africa, Nick, because we've got sub-regionals there on the road to the T20 World Cup 2024 on the men's side. Group B of the sub-regionals, we've already had Group A in the books. And at the time of recording, Nigeria and Tanzania are slowly running away, not only with five wins apiece from as many matches, their net run rates are also very good. They'll play each other, of course, after we record. Everyone will play a total of uh, seven matches. It's basically just a round robin with eight teams. At this point, it looks like Nigeria and Tanzania will take those two spots to go to the regional qualifier next year. Not a huge shock. It would take something monumental for the likes of a Mozambique or a Sierra Leone to, to overtake them. Can't see it happening, hence why we're talking about it now. Tanzania is certainly a a force in the game that we've been keeping an eye out on, not only in under-19 cricket, but in senior cricket as well. We know they're playing uh, this tournament actually in in Rwanda, in in Kigali, and they're not in the tournament because they were in Group A, but it's been great to have this tournament in Kigali as well at Gahunga and and elsewhere because it's one of the best places to witness cricket on a a stream or if you're lucky enough to be there in person. But yeah, we've, we've noticed that Tanzania has made a real push over the last couple of years. There's quite a lot of strong influence there on, on a coaching side of things. But Nigeria as well, who have moved into this phase of senior cricket now where they have played in an under-19 World Cup. You're slowly getting the under-19s through into the senior team. Uh, the likes of the Okpe brothers are, are two that have done well with the ball. Uh, Isaac and Sylvester, a few other individuals that we'll talk about uh, in detail from all the teams, I suppose. But yeah, it looks as if Nigeria and Tanzania are the teams to, to go forward and progress unless something monumental happens in the next two days before this show goes out and everyone thinks that we're really stupid for talking about it. <laughs> oh, look, if that happens, you know, if the Mozambique or Sierra Leone 
pull off a miracle somehow. Fair play. I mean, good for them, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it does, it does seem like uh, a Tanzania and Nigeria. Good for Tanzania and Nigeria. Um, Tanzania, you mentioned the under-19s crew coming through. Uh, I think someone like a, a Yelinde Nakanya coming through, left-arm orthodox spinner, another one of those doing well. Uh, picking up a lot of wickets, um, you know, he's come through the under-19 system and and uh, is, is now performing on at the senior level. You know, so that's in, in encouraging is the fact that their under-19 talents are, are breaking through and um, still producing results at the next level, and and that's a good sign for their growing talent pathway. Um, honestly, Sierra Leone getting this close, I think, is a good effort for them ahead of the tournament. I probably would have expected Ghana. To do a lot better, but they've been uh, pretty disappointing, honestly. Um, some rumours of internal conflict, and um, you know, maybe not the best preparation, uh, kind of swirling around the team from from various sources. Uh, so that's not great if that's what's happening. Um, yeah, Mozambique, as we said um, last week, I was a bit worried that uh, a couple of their star players in Felipe Cosa and Francisco Kuana were not in the team, but it seems like they're back in the squad. And potentially, it was just a, a mistake in the announcement or, or something along those lines. But uh, you know, both of those guys contributing pretty significantly, with Kuana topping the run tallies for them a couple of half centuries, had <laughs> a had a strike rate of 136, which is you know better than anyone else. Jean Bulele is another one who's who's been impressive for them. Um, picked up a few wickets and and has also batted quite well. Yeah, so, you know, the fact that Mozambique are still performing, um, they're a good story. You know, a country without the sort of historical connection to cricket that does exist in, I guess, former British colonies, um, uh, you know, formerly a, a Portuguese uh, territory, uh, have they've picked up cricket, I guess, due to the proximity to their neighbours and, and, and the, the sport growing through that way. So it's always encouraging to see, yeah, I guess, non-Anglophone cricketing nations uh, making their way uh, in the game. So although they won't make it to the next level, they've they've put in a pretty creditable performance and, um, yeah, one to watch. I'll just make a, a quick point here and kind of piggyback on the, on the chat of non-English speaking nations embracing cricket in Africa. And it's a real theme of the region. Rwanda, for several reasons outside of, of cricket, moved to actually become part of the Commonwealth and, and cricket therefore had a bit more of a standing in, in the country and, and there was a chance for cricket to grow out of those roots given the political situation that the country might have been in you know, throughout the, the mid-90s that is well documented. But for teams like Mali and Cameroon, Francophonic nations, uh, looking at a, a team like Mozambique and its Portuguese roots, I think we take for granted, you know, cricketing countries and and being part of the Commonwealth and being English speaking that a lot of cricket's hurdles in terms of its introduction come through from language. And one of the reasons why Argentina picked up, I think, one of their development awards last year was the fact that they actually provided textbooks and, and training manuals and coaching manuals in Spanish. And even in a world that we live in where it is quite cosmopolitan and and you know, in, in many regards, English English plays a, a very big part in the way that the world is run. There are so many hurdles that still stop budding cricketers to bring it back to cricket purely by language. And for someone like Mali, uh, I think that only introduced cricket in Bamako in, I want to say 2000, so the turn of the millennium. You know, you've only had two decades to put together 
not only a board, a functioning board, but become an ICC member and then to have the talent pool to actually select teams and play in international competition. It's incredibly heartening to see. And to bring it back to sub-regional qualifier B, you know, the likes of a Mozambique or, you know, a Cameroon and, and, and others playing in a tournament, yes, Cameroon might not have had a win as yet in this particular competition as we record, but it's admirable just for many of these places to, to get things up and running and to actually be in a spot to represent your country. And and it's a proud moment, whichever way you, you put it at, at any level. Um, and that's something that gets lost when, you know, cricket is a sport that is rather elitist in terms of status and other things like that. And one of the benefits of the advent of T20 international status is that, you know, it doesn't really matter where you're from. If you're an ICC member, you have the opportunity to make headway in records and, and places where people read and watch cricket. And, you know, for many out there, if they see a, a Ghana or if they see a Mozambique or a Mali at the head of a record, you never know what that might do to, to cricket in the country. So, again, Africa is one of those regions where we are seeing a boom in cricket and it's not necessarily been from from a Commonwealth perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, I mean, obviously the... Um, even even someone like Nigeria, who are currently topping the table, um, five wins from five matches, although they haven't played Tanzania yet, that's a country that hasn't had a huge cricketing history over the years, and and they're they're sort of coming to it a bit later on. So you know, you, even even within the kind of historically anglophone slash Commonwealth countries, there's a variable kind of levels of, of cricketing tradition, and you know, Nigeria is one that's that's taken it up a bit more recently, and uh, you know we've seen. The results of, of a pretty impressive development program in, in terms of both uh, building facilities around the nation, but also, um, yeah, just getting a lot of kids picking up a bat and ball and then, you know, <laughs> going from there. And, yeah, we, we're seeing the, the fruits of, of those efforts as the team uh, just keeps getting better and better, at least within the African region. And, yeah, it'll be very uh, interesting to see how they measure up in the regional final because they'll be coming up against, obviously, much tougher opposition. But, uh yeah, guys like the the Okpe brothers, Sulman Runsaway, Asmit Shrestha, you know, th- these guys who are coming through, they've been they've been very impressive and will they make it out of the regional finals? Probably not, but you know, it's 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 a step and it's an improvement and you know, if they keep getting better just a little bit, you know, Im- improving a little bit each time, yeah, Nigeria is going to be a, a very uh, a very formidable force in that West African region and who knows, you know, this is something we've kind of talked about in the past, but you know, if cricket can get a foothold in the most populous country in Africa, I, I don't see why it can't just keep getting better and better for them. Yeah, again, you know, it's it's a numbers game sometimes, and they've successfully taken that development awards in the past as well, and, and we know that they've had issues of their own that, that cricket has helped them with, with the programs that they've put in, in schools and in camps in the country as well. And, you know, just like anywhere else, you've got to start somewhere in cricket. It just so happens that... You know, we're all living in a time where a lot of these countries are introducing themselves to cricket for the first time. And every single country in, in cricket outside of, you know, those English people that originated the game, we all started somewhere learning this game. And, you know, in their historical arc in, in parts of Africa, it's right now and it's it's special to see. Let's finish off with just a wrap-up of the action in Thailand. Uh, as we left you last week, Thailand were storming away to a uh, T20I series win to back up their clean sweep in the one day internationals as well. They ended up winning the series 3-1. Don't think there was a lot to add, although I have had 
I suppose a letter, I'll call it a letter, a message from one of the EC patrons uh, I'll talk about in a second. But Nick, uh, I think it's just the way that it, that it panned out, the way that we expected Thailand being too strong. But the, the Dutch can take away quite a bit from that tour from Chiang Mai. Yeah, I mean, beating Thailand um, as an associate women's team is no mean feat. Thailand, are, <laughs> they're, they're well out in front as far as being the best women's associate team uh, at the moment, uh, ranked number eight in in women's ODIs, um, so you know that that kind of shows where they're at um, in yeah within the sort of associate hierarchy. Um, yeah, so five wicket win to the Netherlands on the last ball of the second T20I, impressive work for them. Um, we we've been over I guess all the issues that the Netherlands have, and and fundamentally it just amounts to they don't quite have the talent pool at the moment, um, which is. Yeah, a pretty long-term issue, but something they're, they're no doubt trying to work on. Um, but yeah, Thailand won the first match by 10 wickets. Netherlands won the second by five, as, as we said on the last ball. Thailand cruised to victory in the next two games, uh, five wickets and 31 runs to, to make it a 3-1 series victory. And um, yeah, pretty clinical stuff from the Thai ladies. Uh, interesting to see a few of the, the younger names coming through. Um, although one, one interesting point I sort of discovered was Nanapak Koncharonkai got uh, three stumpings in one game and she actually has more stumpings than caught behinds which there wouldn't be that many wicket keepers with with that record would there that's a curious stat Nick I'm very grateful that you've managed to dig that up because that's definitely something to, to look into I think I might be how the Thai women play their T20 international cricket in particular. They do play with a lot of spin. Yeah, it's sort of surprising but not surprising. And, Slow you know. wickets carrying to the keeper. You never know. I think there's there's probably a, a number of contributing factors. Speaking of contributing factors in, in the way that the Thai team is set up, uh, patron, very good friend of mine, Ryan Morgan, first of all, shout out. He uh, was listening to last week's podcast and he, and he sent me this message and if you allow me to indulge in in this message, I think there's quite a lot behind this and probably a good way to sort of wrap up this week's show. He says, quote, As your foremost Thailand-obsessed listener, I have a Chinita Suturawang theory. I'm convinced that during the World Cup, she saw all the bowlers who were way faster than her and she tried to change her action, got the yips in the process and is now returning back towards her old action. She completely lost the ability to swing the ball for a while. She seemed to have got some of that back in the Dutch series, but it's definitely still not where it was four years ago. And that was my TED Talk. End of quote. I told him that I would be adding this into this week's show. Uh, he then added an extra sort of uh, PS. On the Natalia Buchatam front, he says, I don't think she's in the team this time next year, provides little with the bat and is now potentially their fifth to seventh best bowler. And they've started to give Putuong her opening role occasionally. Food for thought, I can't really say I, I disagree with any of that. It's going to be a little bit interesting, though. I still look at Natalia Butchatam as a pivotal player in this team, purely from just an economic standpoint. She just ties down and ends so well with that off spin. A little bit disappointed, maybe, that her batting is probably not what it has been in times gone by. But again, a good sign that people from the outside are starting to see that there is a little bit of a transition period here where we are starting to see the young next generation of, of Thai international women's cricketers come through and we were hoping that this would happen but it just seems to look like these things are coming into fruition and, and it means that Thailand should continue to be a growing force in, in the game in, in times to come. 
Yeah, it is a bit disappointing that uh, Butcher Thames' batting seems to have fallen by the wayside. And her bowling, I mean, her bowling's still very good. It, it is, as you say, very um, very economical, very tidy. But, you know, the fact that we can envision a tie team without Butcher Tam, that's, that's encouraging because, you know, a couple of years ago, you'd, you'd think, Wow, what do they do when when these senior players retire? Whereas now you're thinking you can you can see a role for someone else coming in, and you know they can sort of make up the the difference, and they probably don't really need her, and and that's you know, that's a good place to be in as a team where you're thinking we can do without our star senior players, and so yeah, the, once again that just shows the um, impressive development efforts of the Thai women's team. Yeah, and just to wrap up, you know if the uh, the earlier part of the tour we wrapped in in great detail last week. So if you did miss it, make sure to go back and listen to that. And Rod Lyle has been a machine with match reports of every single match of that tour. So comprehensive, I think, is the word we could describe our coverage of that particular tour. And it was a historic one on, on several different levels. And congratulations to, to both teams for, for making it possible, especially to the tyres hosting and, and the Dutch travelling and uh, just to kind of tie a bow on this completely, Rod sat down with, with Monica Visser, who is now the CEO of the, the KNCB and has been for the last few months. And it all kind of ties into the T20 World Cup performance of the men. And it does seem to be a positive period now for uh, Dutch cricket and, and hopefully a lot of the, the off-field stuff that seemed to really hamper the action on the field. It, it seems to be in the rearview mirror now. So, you know, with a bit of luck, we, we see the Dutch continuing to, to dominate at this level. I think that's everything in the Emerging Game this week, Nick. Thank you for joining me once again. Tim again sends his apologies, but with Challenge League uh, still going, he's uh, acting not only as CEO, but as team manager as well. To keep up with news and events from the Games New World, make sure to follow Emerging Cricket wherever you are on your social media platforms and EmergingCricket.com. You can get the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts from. And uh, we'll be here again next week, Art Wager, talking about more Emerging Cricket.